Welcome to the book album, your place for everything related to reading and language. I'm your host, Mackenzie Gens. Now, bookmark that book and let's begin. <laughs> hello, hello, and welcome to the show. Hello, and herzlich willkommen zu unserem Podcast. I am thrilled to welcome you to the fifth and final episode of our December Dickens 2021 series on none other than The Haunted Man and the Ghost's Bargain by Charles Dickens. And a reminder that we chose our content for our fourth December Dickens series with care not to show favor to one tradition over another, but to review great literature as just that. Without further ado, The Haunted Man and the Ghost's Bargain. As the title suggests, this is the darkest and most tragic of the Christmas novellas that Dickens wrote, and it puts us full circle back to the desolate beginning of A Christmas Carol when we arrive on scene with Ebenezer Scrooge. Looking at the plot here, we've got Chapter 1, The Gift Bestowed. On page 1, quote, the dread word, ghost, recalls me. So we have, again, this very creepy, very desolate kind of introduction. There is an omniscient narrator as there is in the other Christmas novellas. There's this man that we come in on who has this sunken, dreadful appearance. Page one again. He's this learned man in chemistry, a great instructor, a great thinker, but again has this kind of desolate quality about him, almost an abstracted quality about him. This introduction, this short story, short novella, is actually the most different from the other four Christmas novellas. Really, it's so dark and it's so devastated, almost. It has a similar quality almost to the battle of life at the beginning with this war that's abstracted away and very zoomed out kind of picture. This introduction is quite specific to this man, to sort of the pain and the isolation loss that he seems to have gone through, but it's so different. The thematic material is much heavier, those sentences are much shorter, they get right to the point. Um, that sentence that I just quoted, the dread word ghost recalls me. That's not a typical Dickensian sentence. That's not a sentence that you have to like look around and try to trace subjects and the verbs. This is a sentence that hits you in the core and a lot of sentences are like that, a larger proportion than normal in this short. Quote on page three, when twilight everywhere released the shadows, prisoned up all day, that now closed in, gathered like mustering swarms of ghosts. So again, already even the thematic material is different than the other Christmas novels. It's more about spirits and souls and sometimes the lack thereof. 
It reminds me so much of the poem The Raven by Edgar Allan Poe. This is a poem that we have gone over uh, during Horrifying Classics, I believe during our first ever Horrifying Classics series, so that episode is definitely up for reboot, but it's one of those poems that is so immediate but so creepy and you can't help but just have this wash of scene and mood in it. Mood versus tone. Tone comes from the author. author. Mood comes from the scene that's established. Mr. Swidger, this kind of Dickensian shorts, of course, have names that really embody the characters themselves. So Swidger, he is how he sounds, very bustling and quite active. He comes in and he talks about Mrs. Williams being taken off balance by the elements outside and we learn that the chemist who's sitting there, who we come across in the first scene in the introduction, is named Mr. Redlaw. He reminds me, this name reminds me of an outlaw, like a cowboy, like a sort of antithesis to the cowboy hero to a certain extent. And this little scene with Mr. Swidger juxtaposes Mr. Williams and Mrs. Williams. She is this neat and prim and proper lady, whereas he is not. <laughs> we also learn that Mr. Swidger's father is an older, very old gentleman actually, and he's sort of the comic relief of this entire story. He comes in, he has a piece of holly, and he talks about his happy Christmases of the past, very much like Scrooge, very much when, like when the first ghost takes Scrooge back, and Scrooge remembers that even though he had not had happy Christmases as a child, there was such a thing as happy Christmas around him. And that was important for establishing this sort of Christmas mood, so this scene really does start to introduce actual Christmas thematic material, which is again a bit different from the other shorts because only A Christmas Carol has that direct link to Christmas. The others have, again, this thematic material, this kind of joyous ending, and have sort of a seasonal vibe. So for example, The Chimes takes place around New Year's and there's weddings involved in a lot of these shorts, but again, the direct references to Christmas, the direct symbol of Holly, that's something that is very interesting and unique to this short. There's this portrait above the paneling that old Mr. Swidger is very taken with and it keeps coming back, so this is a very prominent symbol throughout the short story, and the quote on the portrait is, Lord, keep my memory green. First scene on page seven. And I love that quote. I love how <laughs> there's this emphasis on memory, and a lot of this short does revolve around memory, and how the old Mr. Swidger, while he doesn't have his memory entirely, he has these sort of selective bits that come out at these key times and the memory of the place where Mr. Redlaw is at the moment, his house, how his house was in the past, how past holidays were at the house, all of these different memories and there's this intermingling of the past and the present that I find so beautiful and so spiritual in a sense. 
Throughout this discourse, Mrs. Williams comes in. There's a mention of a young sick student living in one of the buildings in town, which all of them know about. And they're talking for so long, and they're in this chamber for so long, that Dickens starts to build in the darkness and build up the darkness over several pages. So the room darkens and darkens and darkens and darkens so gradually over these several pages. It's almost like he's playing with pacing, but he's not. He's playing with mood. He's darkening the mood ever so slightly over these pages. And what's miraculous about it is that the mood is already so dark and he just keeps taking time to build up the darkness. It's almost as if you don't notice it until it gets extremely dark and then the room darkens a second time. When the room does this, the haunted man arrives. There's a very strange description on page 10. Quote, as he fell amusing in his chair alone, the healthy holly withered on the wall and dropped dead branches. As the gloom and shadow thickened behind him in that place where it had been gathering so darkly, it took by slow degrees, or out of it there came, by some unreal unsubstantial process, not to be traced by any human sense, an awful likeness of himself, this is Mr. Redlaw, ghastly and cold, colorless in its leaden face and hands, but with features and his bright eyes and his grizzled hair and dressed in the gloomy shadow of his dress, it came into his terrible appearance of existence, motionless without a sound. As he leaned his arm upon the elbow of his chair, ruminating before the fire, it leaned upon the chair back, close above him, with its appalling copy of his face, looking where his face looked, and bearing the same expression his face bore. This, then, was the something that had passed and gone already. This was the dread companion of the haunted man." Unquote. So again, very strange. We've, we have this extra real element, as there are in all of these Christmas novellas to an extent. Battle of Life doesn't have this. The passing of time maybe is the most near to this extra real kind of sense that we have in the others. The chimes, certainly, when Trotty Vec faints in the bell tower and sees all these visions of spirits and goes back and forth in time. <clears throat> certainly in the Christmas Carol as well. And also certainly in the others. The dialogue between the haunted man and Mr. Rudlaw that ensues is much like a play. There's this back and forth and there's this rhetoric that they have between them that highlights their similarities to one, each to one another or to each other which is actually quite disturbing in some senses, because you realize that you, I, the reader, am also similar to Mr. Redlaw in certain respects, right? He's a human. He has these very human traits that come out in this exchange with his own ghost, the haunted man, Mr. Redlaw, and his phantom. The dialogue reminds me a bit of plays by Samuel Beckett. There's this sort of distance that we expect 
people to cross in dialogue. But that distance really isn't achieved, and not, at least not to the extent that you expect it. So perhaps it's a form of suspense, where Dickens is playing with the reader's expectations around time, as Malcolm Gladwell would say. But perhaps it's also a way to still the plot and to still the sense of pacing within the conversation, much like Samuel Beckett would do later in plays like Looking for Godot, for example. It's also much like Hamlet, this ghost of himself, right, with the scene with Hamlet's father. They talk about dread. They talk about this thematic material that hangs very heavy in the air, very much like Hamlet as well. They talk about Mr. Redlaw's dead sister. And there's this memory of sorrow that burdens Mr. Redlaw, and he chooses to sort of cast it to the side and move on in this conversation, which is one sense of progression. On page 15, there's a beautiful description of the person who intrudes in the lecture hall after the ghost leaves. Quote, a bundle of tatters held together by a hand in size and form almost an infant's, but in its greedy, desperate little clutch, a bad old man's. A face rounded and smoothed by some half dozen years, but pinched and twisted by the experiences of a life. Bright eyes, but not youthful. Naked feet, beautiful in their childish delicacy, ugly in the blood and dirt that cracked upon them. A baby savage, a young monster, a child who had never been a child. A creature who might live to take the outward form of a man, but who within would live and perish a mere beast, unquote. I love the sense of the duality in this short story. There's, of course, the child, the man-child, but there's also Mr. Redlaw himself, who has the same kind of duality within him. And I think that's such a valuable thing to reflect on in our own lives. Where are these dualities, and why does Dickens want to highlight them in this way, in this short story? especially considering the subject matter of Christmas around it. This boy who enters the lecture hall is, of course, the boy who has been mentioned earlier by Mrs. Williams at all, and he's so much like the character Joe from Bleak House, um, this very just desolate creature. Joe has, is so poor, he's so deprived that he has no surname, he has no Christian name, just Joe. And there's this symbolism in the boy's namelessness that I find to be so concrete that this person that Medwall sees is again just so desolate, so quote-unquote unworthy, and so deprived that there's no name for him at this point, and he's not identified until later. Redlaw's behavior becomes quite erratic, quite atheistic in a sense, quite apathetic after the phantom leaves. He's very odd, he's very disturbed, and that translates directly into how he interacts with this boy. And there's a sense that Redlaw prevents himself from doing something terrible to the boy. Chapter 2, The Gift Diffused. We started in with a very different <laughs> Scene. There's this small man with small children in a small space. 
we have Tetterby and Tetterby's baby. It is such an, again, the juxtaposition here. There's this second part juxtaposes with the first, just as the description of the man-child, the boy-child, juxtaposes this figure within himself, and just as Mr. Redlaw's character and his ghost juxtapose themselves. They're similar in a lot of ways, there's this kind of inner chaos in both of them. The difference is here, the chaos is overt, and in the first part, the chaos is covert, it's subversive. So, <laughs> Tetterby. This is the Tetterby family, of course. There's Johnny, the younger son, who is taking care of the baby. We have this trope a lot in Dickensian works where, for example, Tilly Slowboy is the caretaker, the nanny for the family in Cricket on the Hearth. Um, but Tilly is not necessarily the kind of nanny that I would want to take care of my children one day, for example. She's quite clumsy, <laughs> so there's this trope of um, babies not being quite taken care of. <laughs> this is actually uh, also a theme in Bleak House, very presently, with the family who's involved with Africa. They do not take care of the little babies um, in the way that one might expect. It's quite humorous, this part. There's a lot of baby babies and other children and bodies bustling about. Tetterby is in the news business, we learn, and again, this is sort of a Dickensism to have this kind of bustling household. Um, and the news business has been also apprenticed by the Tetterby son, Adolphus, and he goes along the railroad tracks and <laughs> plays around with his vowels, as he calls. So he'll call something like paper, you know, popper, pepper, pipper, <laughs> and you will change the vowels on his regular saying every time throughout the day to keep himself occupied, but also, as humorous aside, very Dickensian. Mrs. Tetterby, in this exchange, which is, as we learn around dinner time, thinks about what it would have been like, how her life would have changed if she had married a soldier or not at all, and she despairs at the poorness of her, of her family and with the number of mouths to feed. So again, even in this like bustling, joyful part with all these children, there's also this desolation and this grief that's present and hanging over at least this character. Mr. Redlaw ends up coming to the door. Big surprise. I love it when Dickens ties together parts like this that seem so desperate at first. And there's a one Mr. Denham who lodges in their house, very common. I think of Crook in Bleak House, again, very interesting how, at least to me, how all of these Christmas novellas have elements that Dickens was developing and ended up using in his later works, which are his most grandiose in terms of scale and his most well-known in terms of not only writing quality and descriptive quality, but also in terms of um, his entire of literature. 
The chemist is still acting odd when he comes into the house and asks for Mr. Denham. And this part to it, this sort of like odd behavior, erratic senses, has a crime and punishment feeling to it to me where there's just this overhanging guilt and it's almost like this mania that you feel rising in the character but also in the scenes. So Mr. Redlaw visits this man who is a student and Redlaw ended up having a relationship earlier with the student's mother. There's this odd scene where a girl, Millie, comes in and Edmund, i.e. the student that Redlaw's visiting, shoes her away very coldly. It's almost like Mr. Redlaw's visit has had an effect on him and how he would interact with this girl. He's fallen on hard times, we all know this, and Millie is this figure of warmth and light in his life, and yet he shoes her away very coldly and oddly. Rala is still there during this exchange and sees this exchange and we realize through Redlaw's reflections, through this omniscient narrator observing him, that Redlaw has made Edmund cold and heartless like himself. And this is kind of a curse that the haunted man carries with him from the ghost. That's sort of the ghost's bargain, if you will. And the curse is that where Edmund would have felt compassion before, he is hardened like stone. Redlaw, after this exchange, goes back to the boy in rags, and he asks him to show him the place where people are evil, which is basically Tom all alone's in Bleak House. And you can see how many connections this short has to Bleak House. And it's not only thematic material, it's the way that the characters are developed, it's the way that the story moves between places and how the places are interlocking and how complex the characterization is. Even in this very short piece that Dickens wrote, I love how dense and complex it is and how the sentence variation and the way that Dickens wrote this piece is so different from the others and this is the latest of the pieces of course of the five Christmas novellas so it does show his progression and his um, development in that sense as a writer. On page 33, three times in their progress they were side by side. Three times they stopped being side by side. Three times the chemist glanced down at his face and shuddered as it forced upon him one reflection. The first occasion was when they were crossing an old churchyard and Redlaw stopped among the graves, utterly at a loss how to connect them with any tender, softening, or consolatory thought. The second was when the breaking forth of the moon induced him to look up at the heavens where he saw her and her glory, surrounded by a host of stars he still knew by the names and histories which human science has appended to them. But where he saw nothing else he had been wont to see, felt nothing he had been wont to feel, and looking up there on a bright night. The third was when he stopped to listen to a plaintive strain of music but could only hear a tune made manifest to him by the dry mechanism of the instruments and his own ears, and no address to any mystery within him, without a whisper in it of the past or of the future, powerless upon him as the sound of last year's running water or the rushing of last year's wind. 
At each of these three times, he saw with horror that, in spite of the vast intellectual distance between them and their being unlike each other in all physical respects, the expression on the boy's face was this expression on his own, unquote. So again, very creepy, this juxtaposition here. Redlaw ends up coming to a lodge and he encounters a woman who was abused and left home. This is the place where evil is, essentially, that the young man brings him to. And then he finds George, Mr. Swidger's son, on his deathbed. This is the grandson of the oldest Mr. Swidger. Mr. Redlaw, as he's nearing the presences in the room, feels that he is drawn to curse George, but he ends up affecting the old man, old Mr. Switcher instead, who abandons George and forgets slash doesn't care really about his wealth of memories anymore, which is, I think, the most distinct loss in personality we've seen so far as the story has developed. The symbol of the holly berries comes back at this point, holly berries bringing life and bringing the joy of the season, and the holly berries here are ignored, which is a huge symbol and a huge sign here. Redlaw sequesters himself after this event, after being devastated essentially by this event, by this cursing of this old man. He sequesters himself in a room with the boy in rags as his only companion. Millie eventually wants into the room, saying that a dear friend wants to see Redlaw, and this scene that follows is very emotionally charged. It's much like Macbeth, when he goes crazy at the end, and he has this long soliloquy, and he's going on and on about his own, essentially his own madness, and his own face, and he believes that he sees certain figures, and it's it's sort of like raving mad. It's the very emotionally charged nature of that scene is definitely in this one as well. It's very, it's very much like a play, very enigmatic though, the way that everything is played out. Finally, chapter three, the gift reversed. In true Dickensian fashion, Millie may unknowingly have the power to tolerate Redlaw, or indeed reverse his nature. This is quite a common scene, and this is definitely common to the battle of life as well. In the end, the lone daughter comes back and heals the family wounds that she sort of caused in a certain sense, but she was the missing link after all and she was the key to their ultimate prosperity and happiness and when she comes back the key locks into place this chapter three moves quite quickly at least in my reading of it where millie unknowingly had the power to start to affect change in redlaw the specter redlaw's ghost returns and he has the same amount of dreaded emotion as the first scene on page 43. Quote, From every seed of evil in this boy, a field of ruin is grown that shall be gathered in and garnered up and sown again in many places in the world until regions are overspread with wickedness enough to raise the waters of another deluge. 
Open and unpunished murder in a city's streets would be less guilty in its daily toleration than one such spectacle as this." Unquote. This is the ghost talking about the young man. After the ghost and Bradlaw exchange, there's this quick transition back to the beginning imagery, very similar to the cricket on the hearth, very similar indeed to the battle of life as well. This sort of almost quasi-frame narration that's going on that's very timely of Dickens. This was a staple of the time, 1850s literature. The Tetterbees come back into focus at this point, and they have none of their kindness left in them. They're sort of desolate, just like Mr. Redlaw. When Millie comes in, their kindness is restored, and she does the same, essentially, for Mr. Redlaw and George. Stories of the dead, someone's late wife and Redlaw's sister, indeed, pass between Millie and the others in the room, and Edmund's father arrives. We find out that Edmund's father used to be friends with Mr. Redlaw, and he abandoned Edmund and his mother. It struck me that the thread with Edmund in it was a little bit too much for, at least for me, as I was reading, to keep track of as I was tallying the story. And there are a lot of threads, and they're woven very well, I think with the exception of this one. This one seems extemporaneous to me, to an extent, um, but it ends up coming together at this last bit. Let's read from page 55. Quote, Then is Christmas is a time in which, of all times in the year, the memory of every remediable sorrow, wrong, and trouble in the world around us should be active with us, not less than our own experiences. For all good, he laid his hand upon the boy, and silently calling him to witness who laid his hand on children in old time, rebuking in the majesty of his prophetic knowledge those who kept them from him, vowed to protect him, teach him, and reclaim him." Unquote. So again, there's this kind of redemption scene, there's this familial loss that Edmund and his mother have had, and they regain that tie, and the emotions of it are restored to Mr. Redlaw, to the Tetterbees, and I love this ending, I think above all others, just because it's so glorious in that sense. It ends with the lines, Lord keep my memory green, the quote from the portrait of this kind of intermingling, this reminder of the intermingling of the past and present and indeed even the future. There's this kind of reminder, this soliloquy, Lord keep my memory green. And there is sort of this religious tone that we haven't seen in the other short stories to as great of an extent at the end that really does bring in the thematic material of Christmas as well. And this character Millie coming in, Edmund, all of these last loose threads that Dickens develops at the very last moment, to me I see as a wonderful literary experiment that he ends up capitalizing on as he writes Bleak House in later years. 
that's all for today. Thank you so much for listening to our last December Dickens podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. We are moving on next week back to reviewing other non-Christmas themed literature. If you enjoyed the episode and would like to hear more from us, we've done everything from Shakespeare to Dracula. There really is a show and a series for everyone, so I'd recommend checking out our website at relevanceofliterature.com under the ongoing series tab for links to our entire back catalog of episodes, as well as any current goings-on of our show. If you are looking for even more content, we also have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash relevanceofliterature. Thank you so much for your support, and we'll see you next time.